Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Becky Talks Parks, a podcast for parks and recreation professionals who are passionate about raising the bar in the field. Today, I am so lucky to be talking with Dustin Graham. He is a parks and playground designer, and he works for Great Southern Recreation, and he is an amazing professional who has so much insight about the future of playgrounds and some of those emerging trends in the field. We get really in depth about how playgrounds and parks are really the foundation for kids to develop into well-rounded adults and how playgrounds are a great place for risk-taking. You'll see that he's just got so many different ideas and observations about the way that we can use the natural features of the landscape to create unique structures. We don't have to have a flat piece of land anymore and we don't want cookie cutter playgrounds anymore. We want to be able to have something that is unique, that makes us stand out, and that makes people want to come back again and again and again. I had such a pleasure to talk with Dustin. I found out that he is also a University of Georgia alumni, and so we had a lot in common, as you'll find out in the conversation, Um, and he is also in the Southeast as well. So if you please listen to this episode all the way through, you'll see that he is um, an amazing perspective about parks and recreation and where it's going. So thanks for listening. Stay tuned and uh, catch you next week, every Tuesday. Thanks again, you guys. I'm Dustin Graham, and I am currently employed by Great Southern Recreation as a designer and territory manager um, here in the Southeast in Tennessee and Georgia. So I get the privilege to design and sell playgrounds and splash pads and outdoor classrooms, pretty much anything outside for the community to access um, and use and hopefully provide a a space for kids to play and learn about themselves and for parents to sit down and maybe take a load off. Um, But while while I'm doing that, I I get to travel and see a lot of the South and essentially I, I, I'm a kid with Legos, like just giant Legos. And I get to design and create these spaces that are uh, eventually built by our company. And you know, I just have a great time doing it and learning more about the wild world of recreation and what, what kids are enjoying and what communities want to see in their, in their park renovations and developments. That's so neat. It really is a wild world of recreation. I like that. Um, so can you tell me like how you got into this? Cause I, what you do is amazing, but can you talk to us about how you got here? Yeah, it's a, a wild uh, kind of twisty turvy path I took to get to where I'm at today. So I started off when I was 14, I was a counselor in training at my local county's uh, park and uh, at Providence park in Milton, Georgia. Um, grew up going there as, as a kid and was employed there. And we would take, um, you know, a five day Monday through Friday day camp situation during the summer and take kids rock climbing and rappelling. There was a quarry, um, actually on site at the camp. So it used to be an old granite quarry and it was bought by the County and, you know, it was turned into a park. So really great activities for rock climbing, rappelling. There was a high ropes course. We had, uh, 12 foot NRS rafts and we'd go rafting down the Chattahoochee. So I really got bit by the recreation bug, um, at a a young age and also 
the opportunity to be a facilitator of recreation for younger kids than myself. So um, starting off in, I guess I was a sophomore in high school, um, like around 15 or 16, um, was when I got to be a, you know, a full-fledged counselor and make a solid paycheck over the summer. And I was like, this is the bee's knees. Like this is the best thing ever, right? I get to, I get to go out from eight o'clock to five o'clock and I'm either climbing or rafting or hiking or like I'm outside and I'm getting paid to do it. And I really, I just loved it. So I did that all through high school when I was uh, in college, uh, worked for wind shape camps at Barry college, um, and facilitated their outdoor recreation group, um, the offsite group. So for two weeks at a time, we'd go off and we'd take extended backpacking trips and do more of the same stuff, rock climbing, uh, rafting, you know, orienteering, that kind of thing, uh, living out of a backpack for, um, a week at a time and coming back, reloading your kit and then going back to the woods and having fun with these kids. Um, so I was a recreation major at university of Georgia and thought go I dogs. wanted go dogs. <laughs> yes. I'm glad you're a, a bulldog fan. Yes. Um, wait, what you, is your major? Recreation and leisure studies. Okay. Okay. So my major was natural resources, recreation, and tourism. Nerd. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you went to the different, it was slightly different. What college was that in? It was college of education. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And yours was natural resources, right? Yes. Yeah. So I, no one told me about NERT until I was like halfway through the program. It okay. is interesting. It is. Um, and if I had known about it, I think I might've gone a, a different path, but um, the, my major, since it was recreation and leisure studies, you know, we, we did quite a bit of, um, you know, paper writing you know, and yes. curriculum writing and um, understanding that diverse communities um, and minority populations have, you know, uh, a need for recreation as well. And we took a historical view of it, you know, like the first um, African-American beach called American Beach and um, learning, learning that, you know, in, in during, you know, Jim Crow era, Blacks couldn't go to the beach. There wasn't a beach for them. So uh, a black entrepreneur, I'm blanking on his name, but he bought a bunch of land and created this space for black Americans to have the quintessential beach vacation that they were missing out on. So I got to see it from a, a, a kind of a more liberal social um, perspective a lot of times in that class. Um, but through that, you know, I got to create cur curriculums for um, the um, senior center in Athens, Georgia, mm -hmm. and uh, did a, a two-week curriculum there. And we'd go in and we would um, teach them how to, you know, on, it was during the fall, so we did a Halloween festival and, you know, let all the older folks that were in there get their hands dirty and make their own pumpkins. So kind of, you know, along the lifespan, everybody, starts as a baby, grows up, and kind of ends as a baby, if you want to think of it from a developmental standpoint. So we are providing these very elementary skills, um, you know, painting a pumpkin, actually gutting a pumpkin, and, car and we would help them carve a pumpkin. Um, we would teach them how to use a Nintendo Wii. They, like, it was kind of when the Nintendo Wii first came to the scene. So a friend had a 
in the classroom had a we and we brought that to the uh, senior home and taught them all how to do we bowling you know low impact we so they they got to do that from their wheelchairs and have fun and laugh and giggle the way we do and we were learning a new video game um so i did university of georgia um went through my uh my tenure there graduated and decided to do wilderness therapy in northeast georgia and i worked for a company called blue ridge uh, second nature blue ridge and um did that for about a year which i learned a heck of a lot about myself um do you know anything about wilderness therapy? I'm, I know a little bit about it. And actually a few of my classmates who graduated went into that, but I'd love to hear your perspective about it. Yeah. So our program um, might be a little different from some other wilderness therapy programs out there. Um, we did not work with adjudicated youth. So the courts did not send our students to us. We were kind of, um, we were more of a private company and our students' parents are kind of, you know, they could see the path that their ch children were, were going down. And um, my students in particular were uh, teenage boys with typically a substance abuse problem. So they were doing drugs or drinking or, you know, getting into trouble with the law, stealing, stuff like that. Um, and their parents saw that something needed to change. So um, our program, these kids are... Um, basically surprised at their house by two transporters. Um, our students refer them as goons. So they got goon squatted and basically they are picked up at like two or three in the morning, put on a plane or a car, wherever they happen to be. And we would get students from France and Lebanon and out West on the East coast, you know, um, and they would show up in the woods and we'd have them for about two to three months. And we served as, um, we wouldn't, we wouldn't provide therapeutic sessions. They had, they would have their own therapist, but we would facilitate essentially outdoor survival and document and assess their ability to adapt to life out in the woods. And every student got to live out of their backpack, um, set up their own shelter and basically manage their life for the first time, um, on their own probably. So what was it a, go like ahead for, yeah what was it like for you to step into that role I mean it doesn't sound like you had a history necessarily of working with troubled youth or teens and so what was that like for you it was tough for me to try and detach from the the mentality I had before being a camp counselor where my job is to make sure everyone's having fun and also also keep the students safe but um uh, primarily to provide an engaging and fun activity and, uh, you know, f fulfill my own need for outdoor adventure. So this was kind of a, a, a different step. Um, and we'd be in the woods for, you know, eight days at a time and then off for six. So like half days on either end of that, but basically a weekend, the woods, a week off, a weekend, a week off. And that like on off, mentality kind of became a grind. Um, but that intense, uh, connection you share with these kids of, you know, we're all suffering when it rains for a solid week, you know, in, in the Northeast, um, Georgia, you, you experience those week long rainstorms and storm cycles. So when all you have is a tarp 
you're yeah. you're under a tarp for a week and everyone's trying to stay dry and we're making these kids hike and build their own fire with traditional fire building methods like a bow drill um and um everything they would have to harvest themselves from the woods so we were teaching outdoor bushcraft which i enjoy and love but also at the same time you know not coddling these kids the way i would probably do at a summer camp like okay you're pissed off you're angry and i can understand why but are you going to let your emotions like stop you from continuing to build your shelter are you going to eat cold food because you gave up on building a fire like i'll give you some suggestions but everything that happens is based off of your choice so um it, it, it learned i learned a lot about myself during that time um and just you know sitting in these therapeutic sessions with the students that i had to observe um helped me understand myself a little bit, but ultimately it wasn't something that I could do for, for that long because I, I, I guess I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sensitive guy. I like to, I like to be outside and have fun, but I'm empathetic to these kids and I found myself taking on a lot of their emotional baggage when I should probably just detach, but it's, it's difficult when you're living with these kids um, and you create a, a real rapport and they're like a little brother to you. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it was great, but it ultimately it wasn't for me. <laughs> so, <clears throat> excuse me. After after I did that for about a year, I uh moved out to Colorado. And I believe you were in Colorado too, right? Yeah, yeah, I lived there for about 4 years and just moved back. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I was in Crested Butte, Colorado for uh from like 2010 to like 2014 in the spring. And um I was started off as a you know raft guide and snowboard ski instructor. Right, and living the life. <laughs> living, living the deadbeat life, not making that much money, and yeah. supplementing my my income as a as a line cook, so mm -hmm. I could uh, I could get some free food and uh, try and try and contribute to the to the roommate fund. Right. Uh, so that that was great for a year, and <laughs> I, w I was able to get a. Uh, this has kind of like shifted me into my current position a little bit. I got into a position with um, the travel agency at Crested Butte Mountain Resort. Was a sales agent, you know, building vacations and um, you know talking to people on the phone that would call in and say, "We're thinking of coming to Crested Butte. What what's there to do?" And I'm like, "Man, you can go skiing, you can go snowboarding, dog sledding, you know, yada yada yada. Let me build this vacation for you." Uh, so got got a little sales training with that became a mid-level manager the adventure services manager for the uh the mountain and would manage the uh, third-party vendors that would provide those activities that were off mountain so if they weren't skiing they could go learn how to drive a snowmobile or a, a snowcat or um go backcountry skiing you know that kind of thing and get off the mountain and do stuff like that so um did that for the rest of my time in Colorado and moved to Chattanooga in 2014. All right. And I got to ask about your move. Why yeah. did you decide to move? Oh man. <laughs> and, where, and how did you make the decision to choose Chattanooga? Yeah. So long story short, I got my heart broken. So <laughs> it was time for me to move on. And, um, I had been, uh, thinking of like, you know, career 
a career change because you know even though the fringe benefits of living in a mountain town are great you're still not making that much money um so anyways um as i was applying for jobs um i could have i had three opportunities on the table uh one with ups one with caterpillar and one with uh playcore who i eventually took but um playcore is a, a large parent company that owns many brands of recreation equipment and um you know caterpillar large large construction equipment ups you know ups um but based off those three opportunities i picked chattanooga and playcore because playcore recreation that's my major i'd hopefully be talking and speaking with the same types of people i went to school with um during you know during these sales cycles and sales calls so i could speak the language and i hopefully know what uh have a bit of a pulse on the industry based off of my education and it also happened to be in chattanooga which is like one of the coolest outdoor towns there is um in the south and i know you're in alabama and alabama's got its own right to outdoor pursuits and trails and stuff like that so like both this whole area in in like middle tennessee and northeast alabama is just like a wonderful place for kayaking and rock climbing and mountain biking and hiking you know you can do everything here except for skiing um so like it it was a no-brainer for me it's like man there's so much fun stuff there and that's how i got here i love that story i can totally relate as you might imagine and I think a lot of people underestimate this part of the country. Um, you know, everyone moves out to Colorado and we went on that boat. Like I, I loved it there, but one thing that I missed was the trees and being Mm. surrounded in the forest and you can't see the 20 or 40 or 50 other people on the trail. All you see is the beautiful green trees around you and you just get immersed in that. And um, that solitude is what I definitely appreciate now more than ever anytime that I go exploring in the South. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And the, you know, more colors in the fall. You know, That's right. The, the aspens are great out there, um, but it, you don't, you can't beat like a late October, early November in the South. Um, pers- personally, I think, I think it's great. I agree. All right. So now, you, so you were working for Playcore, and what were you doing there? Yes, I was an inside sales, um, you know, associate essentially, and was working with national accounts. Um, so basically, just working with a lot of different dealers and uh, people that were putting their feet on the street and shaking hands, and you know, building these these parks um, and selling the amenities. I was servicing them. I was kind of like an internal customer service. And uh, did that for a few months before a position came open in the uh, Playcore surfacing division called Robertson Recreational Surfaces and um, was in a a similar fashion, kind of had a a hybrid role where I would I would service um, one account and on Playcore's uh, Play and Park brand. So Play and Park, um, you know, they're a a national dealership group. Um, And as a surfacing rep, I would help those reps um with their surfacing needs when it comes to like artificial turf or port in place rubber um a little bit more of a a 
a specialty surface versus just regular wood chips, which is what you're going to find on probably 95% of the playgrounds out there will have wood chips. Um, but for these playgrounds and parks that want a inclusive surface on their play area, that's easily uh, accessible in a wheelchair or another mobility device. Um, I would help them out with quoting and designs and uh, that kind of thing. So I was doing, was doing that and also doing some direct selling of my own if there were um, bids available for for me to pursue when it's just a surfacing bid. So if a city was going to take their park and excavate all their old wood and they want to do a new surface, I would go after those. So did that for a few years and um, in at the, uh, shoot, I guess it was, yeah, last year, January 2017, um, I got an opportunity to work for Great Southern Recreation and they are a um, independent dealer of a lot of PlayCore lines. So um, now in my current role, I can sell PlayCore's splash pad line, which is Water Odyssey, a playground line called Playcraft, their amenities, their site, shelter, and shade amenities, dog parks. Um, we have a couple other lines that are not owned by Playcore. So we have uh, a wide portfolio to, to use and take our little design toolbox and hopefully create a very unique space that a customer um, can be happy with and meets all their design wishes. Um, but, but we're also the ones that build it too. So we operate on a kind of a different level from some other companies out there that maybe just sell from a catalog. Um, we, we really take it on ourselves to design, build, and help maintain these spaces that we put our name on and we put in the ground. So that's, that's my trajectory. That's how I got here where I, I'm a, I'm like a, a kid with giant Legos. That's, <laughs> That's how it is. Very cool. Okay. So, and then are you, so you go around and you travel and you talk with, I'm guessing it's a lot of park star creation departments or who are you mainly working with? Yeah, we'll work with cities, um, parks and rec directors, um, city managers, city planners. We, for splash pads, you know, we call on uh, landscape architects a lot and um, engineers that might have a, uh, a fountain or a splash pad included in an overall like you know multi-million dollar park renovation but they do have a specialty area that's a playground or a splash pad and we will come in and hopefully provide a consultant service um in in all hopes to hopefully be specced in a project and ultimately win the project um that's kind of the way we we go through it um but for yeah yeah, it sounds like a similar process where someone puts out an RFP and then you you bid and turn in a proposal, that kind of thing. That is exactly right. So we'll we'll do that, and I'm the I'm the guy that comes up with an idea. Hopefully, it's good, and we try and get our point across, get our plan across with 3D models and uh, artistic renderings the best that we can, and um, hopefully the price is right the design is right and we win the project. Sometimes we don't win the project, but that's how it goes. Um, and we're just out there competing with a lot of other good companies out there in uh, the Southeast. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. I, I see. I know what world you're talking about, too, because I work for Greenplay and we do a similar type of thing except for master plans mm -hmm. and strategic plans. So mm -hmm. we don't we don't bring in a nice fancy uh, like model. I wish we could bring in 3D models of a master plan. That'd be more fun. But um, mm -hmm. that's very cool. So what kind of trends do you think that you're seeing? Like, do you um, I know you haven't been in this particular job for too long, but what do you think some trends in the in the field are when it comes to your work? The biggest one for sure is that splash pads are just going through the roof um, in our area anyway. Um, more more municipalities are they're they're going to move away from their in ground pools. Maybe they're going to fill in their pool and replace it with the splash pad because um, it requires less maintenance and less staffing uh, when it comes to lifeguards, insurance is less. Um, the, just the ease of operation is basically a, a push button that any child can walk up and start the splash pad. Um, so a lot of people like splash pads and the interactive fountains um, that provide a, a uh, play by day, show by night scenario. So during the hours of nine to five, for example, it's set to, to play mode. Um, and these are the, the more higher end fountains that from nine to five, maybe the, maybe the ground sprays only go up to a six foot spray, but then at nighttime, the lights come on and then you've got a full uh, 20 foot spray with lights and sometimes music. So these are, these are um, installations that cities can use to draw people to an area and to also keep people in an area for longer, specifically if they were to put it into the plan of a, uh, like a new downtown outdoor mall, um, as, as people are kind of missing or as big box stores are falling in profitability, these, these developers and cities are trying to create a, a reason for people to bring their family and stay longer. And a lot of times fountains, specifically interactive fountains, uh, provide that, um, that social aspect that keep people in a space longer and then maybe they drift off to the local shops nearby. Um, so fountains is a huge one. Water play is a huge one. Um, and we're seeing that more playgrounds are starting to be less cookie cutter, less mm -hmm. post and deck, uh, traditional structures with, you know, stairs over here, slide over there. Um, and we're getting into more nature based natural play where designs are including large embankment hills with embankment slides. So the fall height is, you know, less than a foot, but at the top of the hill, you're 12 feet above the, the exit of the slide. So you still get a, a wonderful view. If you're a, you know, three foot, nothing little kid, you, you think you're on top of the world because when you're little, everything looks so much bigger, right? Remember, and you're climbing on the playground in preschool and then you go back and look at your preschool playground as an adult and like, dang, that's, <laughs> that's tiny. <laughs> yes. And, but as a kid, you remember it being huge, right? Yeah. So these embankment Hills, which are, you, you'll see these more pop up, um, provide kids an opportunity for this repeat play. They come down a slide and they immediately do a 180 and run back up the hill. So these kids are getting winded. They're getting tired. They're having fun rolling down the hill. If it's, if it's, if it's authentic real grass or if it's an artificial turf, um, 
what, whatever it is, these kids love hills. Um, they like, they like to climb. They like to be up high and have a view. So, um, we're, we're seeing the natural landscape and the topography of these play spaces change. And, uh, you won't, you're going to start seeing less of a flat slab of a playground and you're going to start seeing playgrounds with more hills and natural landscapes. Um, and the topography won't limit a playground. Now the topography will be used to, as an advantage in the design of a playground. Um, and hopefully all to the benefit of the user and for the parent who's excited to, to visit a, a beautiful space. Absolutely. Okay. So let me talk about this for a second. Cause I read an article by you about the, um, you said you like taking old inhabitable buildings or things and turning them and seeing their potential in them. And so what you were talking about with, uh, with using the land as it is, I just, I want to talk more about that. So give me your thoughts. Like where did this, and maybe you can explain for anybody who's listening mm -hmm. who hasn't read it, but like, where did this idea come from as, as far as like using the topography and using old things and turning them into something else? Yeah. Um, well, I went to a, a park in Boone, North Carolina, and uh, my wife's from Boone. And I went on a, a trail run with my brother-in-law and he was like, yeah, this used to be a, an old landfill essentially. And they rehabbed the, the site and added a trail system for mountain biking and uh, hiking and also put a really cool playground um, on the site. And one of the best examples, I think I'm getting the name right, it's like Fish Kills Park in New York where it used to be the um, filthiest landfill in America, like in the eighties and New York used to be a rough place in the eighties, but there was a, an initiative to uh, rehab the land um, and essentially turn this massive landfill into a, a park. And it, I believe it might be finished. Um, but from the pictures that were in progress, they were able to create these beautiful rolling hills of native grasses um, and canals where the tide would come in from the um i believe it's the long island sound or the atlantic ocean whatever that water nearby and created canoeing lanes and um, hiking trails and biking trails and just a an open space um for people to escape the city and it's you know larger than central park but it's it's further away um and you really get you know a sense that you're in a, a different place but being able to take a, a piece of land as it is and turn it into um, a public space is a great opportunity from a, a design build standpoint, because if you're able to cut cost um, on the, the potential grading and, you know, excavation and removal of thousands of tons of dirt and rock potentially to, to make a, a, a place perfectly flat, you know, you're able to pack more play value into the space. If you can use less of your budget on that pre-construction site prep, maybe all you got to do is create a parking lot. And that's, that's the kind of the extent of your site prep. And if you have a, you know, a 12 foot high uh, embankment or, a, you know, a retaining wall situation, you can use that retaining wall. It might be ugly and you're sitting there and, um, you're, you're thinking, how can, what can we ever use with this space? But you can turn that retaining wall into a vantage point for kids to climb up 
um, with either like rope nets or climbers or we use GFRC, glass fiber reinforced concrete. And you can take that retaining wall and sculpt a, um, a traverse wall that looks like a climbing boulder and you can build in um, different paths for climbing up to the top of the retaining wall and have slides coming down or fire poles or whatever. Um, but being able to take a space that has potential and for, for me as a designer to see the potential in that space and hopefully get the point across and for somebody to latch onto that idea and say, yes, we can turn that kind of a, that blight of a quarter acre lot into a pocket park. Um, with artificial turf and some non-poisonous landscaping and uh, create a wonderful space that can hopefully engage kids on many different levels by providing many um, opportunities for either thematic play or musical play or climbing play, you know, risk reward, critical thinking when they're climbing on these structures and navigating these hills. Um, that's what, that's why I'm in this business. That's why, I gravitated towards the position I'm at now because I do get to, I get to be creative and I get to hopefully think outside the box than um, the, someone that's used to seeing a playground with four posts, a deck and a slide. Right. Well, I think that there's a different mindset to that as well because, um, you know, there's risk associated with any playground. So what do you tell people when they're concerned about the liabilities of putting in these new features that may seem really good on the outset, but you know that there's actually a real risk associated with it? Yeah. Um, I try and tell my, my customers, I run into this a lot when I speak with school principals and PTAs specifically. Um, they, they see a, a design that I have or an idea and they're like, Ooh, that's dangerous. <laughs> right. I, I, like, Oh, I can just see so many broken arms off of that or whatever. It's like, yes. yeah, you see broken arms off of a six inch curb too. Um, you've got, you know, you've got 12 swings on your playground and maybe no one ever told you that swings are the, the highest cause of injuries on a playground. Um, but everybody has swings. A lot of people have swings. Um, and as a kid, swings are great and the risk is there for a kid to jump off of it or, um, a kid to walk into the swing lane and get hit by their friend, but you take your bumps and you learn. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to stand in front of my, my brother on the swing set ever again after getting hit in the head by his shoe. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, it's a learning tool, um, cause and effect risk reward. These are lessons that need to be taught on a playground and playgrounds are the safest space to learn that. Um, some of our climbing structures by Berliner, they, they might be 30 feet tall. Um, and to a parent or to a teacher, it's like, there's no way I'm going to let my six-year-old on that. But if I can sit down and explain to you that the internal net design and the net that the kids are climbing on to get to the top where there is a 30 foot slide, which is a huge height for a kid oh, yeah. at that age. You know, imagine, imagine the sense of mastery and the sense of accomplishment after navigating a climbing net to the top of a 30 foot structure and looking down and seeing how small their parents look. Um, all the while 
me as the designer, I know that the critical fall height for that piece of equipment is probably closer to six feet because the way the net is designed, there's never an opportunity for a direct fall from the top to the bottom of the ground. So there's, there's a, a catch into that net where if a kid were to fall at the top, there are going to be a few opportunities for that kid to, uh, his fall to be slowed down by different parts of the net he can grab on or she can grab on and like catch themselves. Um, if there is a fall, it's, it's not going to feel that great, but it's not also going to end in a traumatic brain injury that might kill the kid um, because it's not a 30 foot fall. However, the risk reward in that sense of accomplishment, I believe warrants that risk, warrants that parent to be uncomfortable while they watch their child navigate and learn about the real world um, through their own hands and feet and eyes as they navigate a very complex system of nets. All the while you see these kids climbing on these types of um, elements where it is a, a, a net matrix, they're, they're not going crazy. They're going slow, they're taking their time and, and they're learning on the fly as they do this, which is invaluable for a young growing mind, especially if you want to think of the, just the, the development of children past the age of, of three on. Most playground equipment is designed for two age groups, ages two to five and ages five to 12. Um, and the sooner you can introduce a, a child, typically around five years old and up, to some of these more engaging climbing elements, you are, you are encouraging many different types of new brain pathways for critical thinking and cross body uh, thinking where you're going left brain, right brain, right hand here, left foot there, left hand here, right foot here. There's my friend, don't, don't get in their path. You know, the spatial reasoning um, allows for these kids to just expand their development at an earlier age. And hopefully that can translate into more critical thinking um, down the road as it applies to school or a career, or if, if they're in a situation where they hit an obstacle, do they, do they fold or do they think of a different way to get around that obstacle? And maybe it's a lesson that they taught themselves on a playground 20 years ago, but that, that grit, that ability to understand an obstacle and adapt and overcome that obstacle is a lesson that they taught themselves and will benefit them for years down the road. So do you feel like playgrounds are the true, um, or I guess give me your philosophy on playgrounds as, as far as like a foundation for a child's life, because a lot of times people, people just take their kids there for fun and they don't really think about it being this learning experience per se. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think a lot of my opinion comes from my, my education um, in recreation and the benefits of, of free play and the opportunities to explore yourself and give yourself a challenge by choice. I'm sure you're familiar with the challenge by choice uh, phrase. Um, but playgrounds today as they are, um, you know, by second grade, most kids have mastered everything on a, on a playground. Um, maybe, maybe the one thing they're working on are the monkey bars because grip strength and upper arm strength, you know, doesn't develop until a later age. So they're working on monkey bars. Um, but typically you're, you're, you know, you're, you're good by first or second grade for most playgrounds out there. So 
I want to see a playground that activates a child's imagination, uh, activates a child's body physically where they're going to be climbing around and learning the, learning the capacity of their grip strength, of their, their leg strength. Um, by, by including musical instruments out there, you can encourage creativity and risk-taking on a different way, you know, with, with some of the musical equipment that we can install on a playground, um, specifically our, our line free notes, it's set to a pentatonic scale. So I know that the pentatonic scale sounds good no matter how, how you hit the notes, right? Mm-hmm. It's, the black, it's the black keys on a piano. And if you're, you can, you can just hit those black keys and they're all going to kind of sound in harmony. Right. Um, so these kids, they can go out and start doing that start playing at an early age and experience what it what it's like to create music to create a sound um and a melody and maybe even start singing which i'm horrified of public singing because i know my voice is is terrible but if i if i had exposure to you know free play musical instruments at an earlier age maybe i'd be more musically inclined for performance today um but Along, along the lines of uh, play opportunities, um, you've got to be able to engage kids on many different levels, especially when um, a hot button word is inclusivity. Right. And you want, you want to create a space that is welcoming to children of all abilities. Um, you know, specifically, a lot of attention is paid to children in wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. and mobility devices so you'll see more more steel and uh, post deck structures with ramps um, and they'll follow the ADA guidelines and you know you'll have a lot of um, ground level instruments that are that are easily accessible um, you know around that 36 inch height but that that's only a small percentage of children with disabilities are children that are in wheelchairs. You have a lot more kids with maybe autism or Asperger's or some, they're somewhere on the spectrum. So being able to create a, um, a sensory proof zone, or, or I guess I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it, but um, kind of like a, a safe space on the playground for if there is a child with autism that's overstimulated by sounds and sights of all the kids running around in the playground, that there's a little nook um, that might be a GFRC cave or a boulder that's got little critters and like little insects and animals sculpted into the, into the play sculpture so that they can sit down, kind of decompress, let the stimulation kind of they kind of balance out and they get used to the stimulation and maybe they're, maybe they're really into touching and they're tactily engaged so they can explore the textures of, of the play equipment. Um, You start to see roller slides out on more playgrounds today Mm -hmm. and those roller slides, some kids like that. They like to feel the vibration as they go down the slide and they enjoy the buzz that they feel as they go over each individual roller and that's that's great for some and then maybe another child that has uh, a sensory um, disability they just like to touch it they just want to roll their hands over the top of it and that's all they need and they're happy doing that so it's it's a kind of a rubik's cube of um, creating these spaces that can hopefully challenge each student the way that they choose to be challenged if that makes sense it makes Um, perfect sense yeah and risk 
risk is a huge part of that and allowing kids to determine how much risk is comfortable for them. And maybe on day one, they don't want to climb up to the top um, via a net climber. They'd rather go around the back, take the stairs, go up a transition stair set, and then go down the slide. And then maybe a week or two later, they're, they're like, okay, I'm feeling good. I'm used to this space. And now I'm going to try the more difficult uh, side. So I love it because then they can, they're making the choice and they have control over how much risk they want to take. And there's only so many places in your world, especially when you're growing up, that you can do that, that you actually have control of your day. Um, like I remember as a child, just feeling kind of, I mean, you're living with your parents. You don't have any control of your life, really. But when you go to play or you're out with your friends and you're playing a sport, like you, you finally do have that sense of being able to take risks and no one can tell you, you know, what to do or not to do on a playground. Um, yeah, I never there's, thought about it like that. Yeah. I mean, there's no right or wrong. Um, my childhood favorite was can't touch ground or the ground's lava. And yes. <laughs> now it's like, you know, how can you, how can you play tag without touching the ground? And, um, that was always fun for me. And I, I was always a really hyperactive kid climbing on stuff. So I, I really enjoyed the, the, the ability to, to climb and not be told, get down from there, Dustin, you know, like get down from there. Like my mom. Yeah. You know? But yeah, playgrounds are great natural classrooms. Um, for kids to learn about themselves and for them to, you know, just learn together, learn how to share, learn how to help a friend climb up, learn how to play thematic play and pretend you're in a fort or you're a pirate or you're playing house or you're the store clerk and the customer, you know, it, it's, it's a wonderful thing when you just drop your kid off and observe from the bench or whatever, and you can see your child just interacting with complete strangers, kids, and you see that this is what society could be like if we're if we're all uh, just kind of free of judgment of ourselves and of expectations of how we're supposed to be. And you can learn a lot of valuable lessons on a playground at an early age. Absolutely, and too with the mental health of everybody and we're so distracted by our phones like we need places mm -hmm. where we can just go and learn more about each other um which actually brings me to another question what do you feel like the future of parks and recreation and maybe technology um mm -hmm. because you know when i talk to a lot of people they're talking about augmented reality in our parks and our playgrounds mm -hmm. and that doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's not necessarily a negative, but it would change things a little bit. I'm just curious about your thoughts on the way things might change with technology. Well, I know, um, I'm sure there will be at some point a, um, a QR code on a playground where it's kind of like um, hide and seek, or not really hide and seek, just like seek, and you're looking for these QR codes. And if you scan the QR code and from where you're standing, maybe as you navigate and turn with your smartphone, because kids are getting smartphones earlier and earlier. And I could talk for an hour about how I think that's a horrible idea, but I, I get it. Um, 
I, I have a flip phone for my personal line, so I'm trying to be better about my data consumption. But uh, I understand kids want smartphones, and it's easy to give a kid a smartphone. But if you can use that smartphone um, and scan it, scan a QR code on a playground, and as you look across the playground, there's like a whale jumping over the the arch bridge that's connecting two sections of a playground, or um, you know something like that, where you're actually seeking different QR codes to learn about maybe the history of a city that's at a city park and you scan this QR code and it's like, Oh, well here in, in 1972, uh, Mr. Henry Ford drag race down this city block. I don't know, whatever, whatever he did. Um, I could, I could see that being cool. Uh, I know there are some, um, musical and kind of like light touch panels, where you can put a child in almost a, a 360 degree. Um, it's, it's like a, it's almost like a cage with lights and sounds on it. And the kids are timed and they get, uh, they get 60 seconds to see how many lights that they can touch. So it has the kid jumping back and forth across a six foot diameter circle. So they're really engaged trying to play almost like a, 360 degree version of Simon, except you're not repeating a pattern. You're just trying to rack up points. Um, there's a really great um, project product by game time called the GT uh, fit course, where it's essentially like it's a, they're like the first company to do the, the commercial take on the American Ninja warrior obstacle course. So they can, you can set a, a timer they have timers built into it to where you can time your 40 yard dash or you can time your your time on uh, start and stop of navigating the course so i think there will be some of that um some of those types of activities where you're challenging yourself and you can challenge your friends to see if you can go faster or if you can beat your best time and try and set a new pr um one of the more interactive things that we do today um with great Southern recreation in our fountain side, we have a company that we've partnered with that actually uses smartphone technology to control interactive fountains. So at nighttime, it's very clear of this interactive control because as the lights are flashing and the water is colored by the LEDs, you could take your smartphone, scan a QR code on the, the basin or on the concrete near the basin and actually control the lights of the fountain so you can use do the entire color spectrum and then also use your your phone's internal gyroscopic controls to make the water jump so if you throw your phone up in the air like just shake it up in the air it'll bounce and you can take your phone and tilt it left and the water on the left will pop up and you can tilt it right and the water on the right will pop up so you can actually control the fountain and um do it volcano mode where volcano mode you push the button and you start shaking your phone. And as after you build it up to a certain level, the, the fountain will erupt with red light and make it uh, reach its max height and kind of simulate a volcano eruption. Um, That's so cool. Yeah. It's super, super cool. It's, it's like cutting edge of the, of the industry. Um, and we're just hoping to find the, the right city that wants to do that because it, it for something like that it's a high investment and the city wants to see a return on it so we can take that that control system 
And if you've ever controlled like a, a, a mountain camera uh, for like a, a webcam and you want to check the snow levels at a, at a certain ski resort, you can log in to that website, take control of the, of the mountain camera for about 30 seconds and look around, you know, mm-hmm. same thing here. If you're in a queue and if you're at a, a public area where a lot of people are controlling the phone before you reach your turn in the queue, your city can be running banner ads on your phone as you're waiting in the queue for <laughs> the ice cream shop down the street or the, the gift shop that's right around the corner. So like we're hoping that um, the technology and the, um, the enthusiasm connect at some point. And that's really what it takes is an enthusiastic council member or city manager or a parks director or someone like you that's creating a master plan. And, and that city is forward thinking. It's like, we're going to embrace this technology and recreation and how can we benefit our users and our small businesses. So, you know, yeah, those are the yeah. things that excite me for sure. Because um, have you ever been to Atlanta's uh, Centennial park? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Like perfect example of a way that these water features can bring people together. I remember, I think I was like five when the Olympics came to Atlanta, but yeah. um, I mean, it was an incredible experience and exactly what you were just talking about. I pictured myself there next to the fountains and people just running around. Everyone had their bathing suit on. Like it was a space to be. And And I think that what a lot of city leaders, they want, but they don't necessarily put the two and two together is that it requires an investment in those um, nice to have items like the playgrounds and this and that. But it turns out that those are actually the must have items, the things that you have to have to build your community and what people really enjoy and love about being in their place. Um, Yeah. And, you know, know, investing in that type of infrastructure only improves the value of homes that are within walking distance within those um, amenities. It improves the quality of life for anybody that's, you know, within a essentially like a two mile radius for like foot traffic and bike traffic. And if you're talking about Atlanta, the Beltline, which is a huge recreational investment by the city of Atlanta um, and the new um, West Park um, near Bankhead. And, uh, I think they're going to probably start breaking ground on that soon, but that park is going to be like maybe 20% bigger than Piedmont park. Um, wow. I'm not sure if you've seen master plans for that, but I have not. that's, that's an incredible park. Um, and will provide a much needed amenity to the almost forgotten West side of Atlanta. Um, and the belt line will be able to connect to that park and, subsequently the eastern and north side of Atlanta which are typically more affluent and you know being able to connect those two communities will be a wonderful thing in about two years I think is their timeline so cities are doing it they're doing it for sure I think so too all right so let's talk about while we're talking about making investments and realizing the link between parks and playgrounds and water features and economic development that might lead into the next question quite well, or maybe not. You can take it wherever you want. But what do you, <laughs> what do you feel um, when, when I say parks and recreation, we need to raise the bar, what comes to mind for you? Because everyone thinks a little bit differently about this. So what does it mean 
for Parks and Recreation to raise the bar? Um, more outdoor fitness equipment so you can really raise a bar and get stronger. No, I have no idea. Uh, if I, if I was in, in, um, a park and rec department shoes and I, and I was tasked to be the director, um, or a facilitator and I was asked to raise the bar, what does that mean? Um, I think the biggest thing is community engagement, um, and being able to provide, um, Activities that people want to, that people really want to be a part of, as opposed to just like, all right, my kid plays rec league soccer, that's it. But how can, how can you create um, engaging programming that get people out in, in droves? Is it, you know, do do you see um, a city park utilizing a inflatable theater? and doing like bi-monthly drive-in nights where there are food trucks and you got a double feature playing with like a Disney movie at the front half of the show and then a more PG-13 adult teenager oriented show in the evening and you're in there, you're in a park for five or six hours. Um, I, I'm sure there, there are some communities out there um, that are doing something like that, but I think that the the biggest the biggest challenge for park and rec departments is the programming side and creating these um, itineraries throughout the year that people are stoked about. Like I love my park system. How do you get people to say, <coughs> excuse me? That's probably the best question a parks and rec uh, department could ask is how do you make the the community say I love my park system? Yes. You know, I I I love the public library and I love the park system. Um, any any young family um, that has kids from the ages of two to 10, I'd expect them to be using that free entertainment all day long. Not, not from just a, a recreation side, but from a cost saving side to where you can use these taxpayer funded projects and activities that are going to be fun, not for the, just for the kid, but for the whole family um, outside of just rec sports or, um, you know, a new playground, but you know, the, the programming side, I think, is would be how I would raise a bar, um, even though I would love to sell the highest priced playground to every city. Um, I think a, a city could benefit more from um, investing in programming and developing a, a year long calendar that everybody is stoked about. All right, you guys, that was my conversation with Dustin. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We went on to talk about what he is looking forward to in the future, and I realized that the conversation went way longer than most of these episodes. So that being said, I kind of cut it off short, but uh, hopefully you're able to get a lot out of this conversation. Please follow Dustin on LinkedIn. Check out Great Southern Rec. Um, They're doing a lot of cool things and let's certainly support each other and all the neat innovative solutions that we are finding that make our parks and recreation a little bit better, a lot of it better. Thank you guys again. Um, I will see you next week.